Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. USU Assistant Professor of History Julia Gossard says that since thousands of witch trials took place across Europe and North America, one stereotypical image of the early modern woman is that of a witch. She, uh, Julie Gosser teaches a class called Witches, Workers, and Wives, which examines attitudes, ideas, and stereotypes about gender, sexuality, and power, including how the witch became a quintessential early modern trope. Julie Gossard is giving a presentation on Halloween for the USU Center for Women and Gender. It's in their Brown Bag series. It's titled Witchy Women, the Long History of Witchcraft in Western Civilization. Julie Gossard, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thank you for having me. So uh, I love this course title. Of course, you have to have the alliteration, Witches, Workers, and Wives. These are roles for, for women. Mm-hmm. The stereotypical images that we might think of women in the past, um, before this program started, you and I were chatting a little bit, and I said, we could put mothers in there too, but it doesn't work with the alliteration right. so well. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, witches. Um, yes. and, and you, uh, when you teach this course, uh, you give me some of your notes here. Thank you so much. Uh, you ask your class, "What do you think of when you, when when you say witch?" Yeah, on right? the first day, on the first day of class, when we start talking about witchcraft, one of the exercises that I do is I say, you know, imagine what a witch looks like, and then I have them draw them, which is a really fun exercise for me later to go and look at their images that they draw. But the things that are really predominant that they keep drawing are women, older women. Green women, which I think is, you know, a little bit of a shout out to Wizard of Oz there Mm -hmm. and our perceptions of those sorts of women as being witches, Um, hats, broomsticks and cats. Those are all these stereotypes that really have persisted throughout history about witches. And so back in the early modern period, by the way, early modern period was when? About, mm, we could say anywhere between about 1450 to about 1800. Okay. Not all witches were women. Not all witches were women, although predominantly women. We do see um, a small amount of men being accused of witchcraft during this period, but it is predominantly women. Um, So these images, and I guess this is popular culture. You you mentioned Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, But they're probably themes that have persisted. Oh, they're definitely themes that persisted. When we look at actual witchcraft trials from this period, we do see a really large number of older women being brought before the courts. They're women who were outsiders. Um, Most of them might have had what they called a witch's mark, which was some sort of a visible deformity on them that they used as evidence that, oh, there was a mark being given by a devil or a demon to give them um, extra powers in that way. So some of these stereotypes that we've started to associate with witches in popular culture, so the warts, the old age, I think about the movie the witches where angelica houston rips off her you know beautiful facade of a face to reveal this old wart riddled woman um, with this long nose in that way and those are things that persisted throughout history and really had um, a clear impact on the way in which we think about witches in our in our popular culture and novels in movies and things like that yeah by the way you use partly a clip from hocus pocus i do i mean hocus pocus is one of those films that really resonates with our students i remember watching it um, growing up and it's it actually 
in retrospect, watching it as a historian, they do some very interesting things with witchcraft trials that are being brought through there. I also just watched um, the first episode of the new Sabrina on Netflix, Mm. and they do a lot there explaining witchcraft in this very interesting way that clearly they had somebody who took a course like Witches, Workers, and Wives being able to bring through ideas of familiars and packs with the devil and witches' sabbaths and and everything like that. So Mm. very interesting. And I learned, uh, reading through your notes, that um, there there wasn't a lot of accusation of witchcraft, or at least the trials um, in the medieval period. This, this is really ramped up in the early modern period. This is period. really something that we see get ramped up in the early modern period. Um, we have about, I think that the low estimate is about 100,000 who are... Um, convicted and tried for witchcraft. A very high estimate would be 9 million, which I think is a little bit of a ridiculous number, but that's a high estimate that we have there. But this really hits a fever pitch between about 1550 to 1650, and then it's all over by 1700. Um, What most Americans are familiar with with the witchcraft um, craze is the Salem witch trials, and that really comes at the very tail end of this witchcraft craze in early modern um, Europe and the Atlantic. So, you know, it's really about 100 years here that we have a fever pitch Mm. going on about witches. And part of that is because of the publication of a work, the Malleus Maleficarum, which is published, I believe, in 1486. And this is really a guide for inquisitors, so Spanish inquisitors, Italian inquisitors, anybody related to the Catholic Church, to weed out witches in their community. How do you tell what a witch is? Okay, these are the signs and symptoms that you have. How do you deal with that? This is the process that you go through. And so when that guide is published, you start to notice um, an intense amount of debate start to happen about, is witchcraft real? Um, Is the devil present in early modern society, which they did believe very strongly? And then what do you do when that happens? And so there's a lot of debate, and then people start to adopt this Malleus Maleficarum in their local communities and start weeding out these witches. Why did it ramp up at this particular time? There are a lot of different debates on why. I think one of the big reasons is this is a period of intense um, conflict and critique on the Catholic Church. 1486 is a little bit early to start talking about the Protestant Reformation, but 1520, 1530, 1540 is not. And so while we are having these major shifts within the Catholic Church, critiquing its structure, the rise of Protestantism start to happen, this opens up the opportunity for um, really a sense of fear to take over people's lives, especially normal peasants and everyday people. They are really going to start seeing that fear about, okay, if the church is not correct, if Martin Luther, you know, one of the big one of the big tropes there is, is that Martin Luther was the devil and he had horned feats and things like that that's being pushed forward. If that's true, then witches must be true as well. So I think that that religious critique and that fear helps ramp up some of these anxieties. Mm. Now, if we step back, of course... Um, you know, potentially thousands of mm-hmm. mostly women mm-hmm. being accused, at least, and yeah. many of them being killed. Right. Um, as it's come to us in popular culture, that's kind of been removed, and it's fun, and it's but, yeah. <laughs> but this is this is horrible, right? This is this is this, very this horrible. Is horrible. Yeah, it's 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 violent. Um, you think about the act of you know 
burning witches at the stake. That's an incredibly violent, incredibly um, painful way to die. And this was really a, a violent period of this. And you're right, in popular culture, we've removed that somewhat. We typically talk about the hanging of witches or things like that. And also the fun aspects of it. You have supernatural powers. You're able to do these things. I think um, that doesn't really capture the violence and the fear that many early modern people felt in relationship to witches. I guess what remains in popular culture, a witch remains an outsider, right? And that yes. was one of the factors then as well. Right. You're more prone to be accused if you're an outsider. Exactly. I think that some of the key things that that remain um, that really fit with early modern tropes is they're an outsider. Um you know, typically older women, maybe what we might think of as non-conforming to beauty standards of the day, so ugly women. Although I think the other thing that has really taken off in the past 50 years in popular culture with witches is the over-sexualized, the very beautiful, the seductress within witches. And that actually does fit with early modern standards there where they thought women were a little bit more prone to be seduced by the devil and then, you know, go through and seduce others with working with the devil. So that actually is an interesting connection that might um, have a larger connection than we've recognized. Yeah. One uh, interesting question that you pose, what was witchcraft? What did they, I guess to preface this, by this time, Mm -hmm. I guess most people would just take as fact there is witchcraft. It's happening. Yeah. This is something that when when I talk to my students about this and we enter this unit, it's really important to have them recognize that these people are living within a very, very, very religious frame in a way in which that even if a modern person is incredibly religious, they can't actually understand how religious of a mindset these people have. Everything comes down to the providence of God or to the evil of the devil here. They truly believe that surrounding them are demons. The devil is lurking there. Um, This is a period before the scientific revolution where if you have a cow that is in a field and they become sick and they die suddenly, you may not think, okay, they probably ate something or, you know, maybe that there was an underlying infection. They aren't thinking that way. What they're thinking is, I have an unexplained reason for why my cow died. It must have been the devil. A demon must have gotten to it there. They truly believed that and they had an understanding that anything that was unexplainable must have been the supernatural at work, whether that is, you know, within, you know, context of heavenly angels at work or demons at work that way. In terms of larger society, there's such a gulf between them and us, right? Mm-hmm. I guess the Enlightenment happened. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, you know, we just had this panel in the um, history department this past Friday on sort of misconceptions of the Middle Ages. And while I think that that was, view- the Middle Ages was viewed as sort of this this dark period, and we're coming out of that with the Renaissance, with more education, we do still have to recognize that their cultural perception is very much within this superstitious realm where they're still discovering science and everything in that way. Yeah. Now there are themes that resonate still today. It's human nature, I yeah. suppose. You know, we we, we still um, some of us, <laughs> I guess, the other who are not as enlightened as we blame the outsiders, right? Right, yeah. those who are different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our problems must be caused by whoever these other people are. Right? Absolutely, and that's that's a really big motivating factor. Um, and 
you actually do see still people who strongly believe in the presence of demons and witches. Um, it's it's interesting to go on, you know, around this time of year on the internet to major news sites and see sometimes you you see okay, you still have um, these exorcisms happening. You still have these ideas of there are covens of witches and things like that, even within culture today. So, I mean, that's not something that goes away. Our superstition and our fears about things that we can't explain are always right there. Yeah. Is there any through, are there any through themes at all to modern day, you know, those who practice Wicca or, you know, or, or maybe treat that first and then, uh, you know, women who have fun with, with mm-hmm. this idea of, of, yeah. of, of, you know, being witches. I think in terms of something that continues on from the early modern period to today is, you know, not all witchcraft, when we were talking about what is witchcraft, not all of it was considered bad. It's really those who are doing what we called maleficium, which is using um, supernatural means to do harm to someone. So making a pact with the devil to get back at your adversary or to intentionally make somebody ill or intentionally kill somebody. That would have been considered bad. But there were a lot of practices um, within early modern communities by what we call cunning men and cunning women, which were using herbal remedies as alternative medicine. So coming up with various, um, you know, root brews that they'd go out to their garden, they would get herbs, they'd make salves to help people with burns and things like that. And that was viewed as perhaps maybe being something outside of normal medicine and the normal scope, but they held important places in their communities. And since they were helping, that was not viewed as being as problematic as maleficium, intentionally causing harm. So I think that that's an interesting connection there where they were looking at the power of the earth, the power of the herbs around them, and thinking there are different um, routes to healing people and to helping people. You also think about apothecaries at this point in time and alchemists and chemists. They were viewed as sort of being within that realm as well, that there were things people couldn't immediately explain about what they were doing because they didn't have the vocabulary. They didn't have the knowledge base to do that, but they weren't doing anything intentionally to cause harm. So that was kind of a, a separate category of witchcraft that was able to continue those healers. You might have, you know, witch doctors in that way. Yeah. So that was kind of a protected class. You- it was sort of a protected class, although yeah. some of those people could come under intense scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And it's when those people are perhaps um, getting in squabbles about land or getting in squabbles about payment or they're working for the wrong family. That's when they become under critique. Otherwise, they're kind of left alone yeah. in their own categories. Even midwives sometimes fit within those categories, especially when midwives are having to give emergency baptisms and things that are outside of the normal purview view of what women can or should do, they're viewed with more suspicion. So it's when they really work outside of their gender roles that that becomes a problem. Emergency baptisms, is this when Mm -hmm. the infant was dying? When the infant was dying, um, or even when the mother was dying, Mm -hmm. you know, and and there was an issue there. So you see midwives having to come in and and do emergency baptisms. How much of an issue is this? I mean, it's probably always been an issue, but... uh women perceived as stepping outside their prescribed roles are perhaps going to be shoved back or slapped down kind of a thing? That's really one of the the big things here is is that in in the Malleus Maleficarum, one of the big things there is, is this woman acting like a woman or is she acting outside of the normal prescriptions of what a woman would do? So is she being, say, you know, is she single and she's well into her 40s or 50s? Is she a widow? Has she never remarried? In that way, those are 
um, red flags, in a sense, to go look at this woman, which again, you wanted to be under patriarchal control. You wanted to have a strong head of household during this period. And women who did not do that were immediately under suspicion. Um, They were working against their gender norms. Women who were active in the marketplace, going out, selling, um, women who were outspoken, not as demure. These These were red flags, again, that they would become under intense scrutiny. Now, a very controlled society at the time, right? And everybody at least is supposed to believe the same thing, Mm -hmm. right? Most apparently did. Yeah. Um, I wonder how pervasive, how much more pervasive these controls were on women than men, because there were controls on men, too. If you... Mm -hmm. If you didn't profess the right doctrine, right. you could be accused as a heretic and I mean, there'd I think, be severe penalties. I think one of the ways to think about this is there was an intense community surveillance during this point in time. You not only have the power of the monarchy in whatever um, kingdom you're in. So, you know, the English monarchy, the French monarchy, even some of these in the Holy Roman Empire, you have principalities. You have that. You have the state coming down on you. And this is a time where court systems are ramping up. Bureaucracy is ramping up. So the state becomes much more present in your everyday life. Plus, you have the Catholic Church. You have this hierarchy of the Catholic Church that is looking down on you. It's especially concerned in the fifteen in the 1500s about religious doctrine. Are you actually performing Catholicism in the way that it should be performed? Do you have a deep um, attachment to Catholicism in this way? Um, or are you a heretic and you're, you're professing new Protestant ideas? So that's part of that surveillance as well. But then within the community, too, you have people judging what your reputation is. Reputation was one of the key things that they were able to access credit, right? In order to buy something on credit, you had to have a good reputation. So we have, especially women, determining which families have a good reputation, which don't. And this intense surveillance of recognizing anything you do in public is going to be on display. People will be judging it. People had a long memory here. Um, just before we go to break, I want to get back yeah. to this idea of current idea of um, kind of a fun take on witches. Yeah. You know, women dress up and uh, maybe embrace this kind of this yeah. image. Well, I think one of the, the main things that students always ask me when they look at witchcraft cases and they see that some of these women professed to being a, a witch. And they said, you know, I am a witch. I've done these things. And it's very clear that they 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 haven't done these things, but they're, they're lying essentially to these court officials, full knowing that they're going to go to trial, that they might be executed. And they say, why would they ever do this? Are they, do they just have a death wish? But actually it gave those women quite a bit of power. For the first time, they might have been listened to in their society. They are the center of attention. They feel like they might have some societal power. People are fearing them. That gave them this great sense of personal power and leadership and worth in a way that's very important for us to recognize there. So I think sometimes, especially in modern culture, that idea of witches can make women feel empowered. Okay, they would be able to have these special powers there. It could be a bond with other women in that way. So I think that there's something empowering sometimes about the image of the witch. And that's maybe why some modern women are drawn to that idea. Mm. That's interesting that women would bring themselves forward mm-hmm. to feel that power, even though it might mean death. Even though it might mean death. Very few times you have women standing up in a community just announcing, I'm a witch. But it's usually during this process of trials, they'll just admit to it. They'll just say, yes, I am a witch. 
I, you know, flew to the witch's Sabbath. I remember the Sabbath completely. I did these things. Um, Yes. And, you know, there are some debates that say, oh, well, maybe these women had schizophrenia or something like that, which is entirely possible. But I think when you look at this, you can say that was a moment where this woman is on the stand. Her whole community is listening to her. She suddenly realizes people fear her and she has power. Mm -hmm. And she might not have ever felt that way before. And no matter how she was looking at it, she recognizes that being on trial for witchcraft, it's never going to end well for her. So why not feel empowered at the end of, of, of of this term of her life? Right. And in, in some places, especially Europe, I think you say mm-hmm. um, the test was torture? Um, in Europe, the test was torture. In Britain, torture is not allowed, so they didn't go through torture. But yeah, a lot of these women would confess to avoid torture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, breaking on the wheel, again, not a pleasant way to go. Right. And I don't know if uh, always dangerous to uh, look to Monty Python for <laughs> historical accuracy, although, you know, some of the stuff is yeah. pretty... Pretty accurate, you know. In the, in the Monty Python, the the you know, if you weigh the same as right as what is it? I think it was a lead, was it a you know? lead or yeah. maybe it was a duck that they brought in. I can't remember exactly. What were the tests? I guess. Um, you know, if she if she floats, if she sinks, they were you know putting her in water in this way. These tests aren't as predominant as what pop culture has made it seem. Um, you know, these tests weren't done each time. It was actually sort of more of going upon reputation than it was testing them. Mm. Although most of these tests were, if she dies, I guess she wasn't a witch. Yeah. So it doesn't end up well for you if you start to have this test. Right, right. Uh, and it's probably a foregone conclusion, I imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to Monty Python, John yeah. Cleese, she turned me into a newt. Yes. I got better. Yeah. Uh, that would, you know, wouldn't matter. You know, yeah, if, it if would he accuses matter. her, then. Exactly. It's the accusation that carries much more weight than any evidence that they actually have. And you have to think that this is a society where that evidence doesn't carry as much power. Again, because of the strong belief in the supernatural, in the kind of inexplicable in that way, their true belief in the supernatural. Yeah. We're talking with Julie Gossart. She's assistant professor of history at uh, Utah State University, and uh, she teaches a class um, at USU called Witches, Workers, and Wives. We're talking about witches on the program today. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. You're listening to Science by the Slice. Many Utahns have heard of Lake Bonneville, but not as many know about the unique imprint it left on northern Utah and southern Idaho. The ancient Pleistocene Lake, of which the Great Salt Lake is a remnant, covered nearly 32,000 square miles at its peak. In the new online video, Geological Highlights of Cache Valley, USU geologists describe the region's geology, including bathtub rings left by the huge body of water. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. You know the saying, all of a sudden... 
Composer Michael Kurth wonders if we could add some more gradations and subtlety to that. Coming up, the string quartet number two by Michael Kurth. It's called Some of a Sudden. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Julia Gossard. She's Assistant Professor of History at USU. She teaches a course at USU called Witches, Workers, and Wives, which examines attitudes, ideas, and stereotypes about gender, sexuality, and power. She's giving a presentation called Witchy Women, The Long History of Witchcraft in Western Civilization. That's for the Center for uh, Women and Gender at USU. That's um, on Halloween Day. Uh, so you have a couple of uh, quotes in the, in the slide presentation you sent over to me. Mm-hmm. For, this is from Malice Maleficarum that you've been referencing. Yes. So first of all, tell me what that was. Okay. And then I wonder if you could read these quotes, which are just stark, yeah. at least to our <laughs> modern ears. So the Malleus Maleficarum is really a guide that is written and published in 1486. Um, Malleus Maleficarum, you could translate the subtitle as Hammer of the Witches. Um, it's written by two inquisitors as to who are really tasked with identifying and trying to eradicate heretics, so those who challenge the faith. And they're really concentrating and doubling down on anybody who might have a relationship with demons or the devil, so in particular, witches. So again, like I said, it was this checklist What are the signs and symptoms that you might have a witch in your community? What are the signs and symptoms that you might have somebody who is interacting with the devil on a daily basis? And why is it important that you root that out of your community? Why do you need to eradicate that? And like I said, this is coming at a time where the Catholic Church is facing intense critique and pressure from Protestantism. So there is this sense that they need to really double down, make sure people are practicing Catholicism in the correct way, that there is not this um, challenging religion of Protestantism on the way, and that nobody is being a heretic here. Um, The work didn't make up any of these ideas, which is interesting. It really combined and um, brought together a lot of ideas that existed within their pop culture, within their religious culture, and within theology about what do witches look like, what do demons look like, what is acceptable practices, and what is heresy. So it really was a guide being given to local priests and um, members of the state to try to help root out these witches. Um, So I wonder if you'd read uh, these. you got you know, I guess you could read all all three okay. quotes. They're, they're each brief. Let me pull them up real quick. Or I've got this right here Perfect. if you want to. Um, so the first is, since they are defective in all the powers of both soul and body, it is not surprising that they cause more acts of sorcery to happen against those for whom they feel jealousy. For in terms of the intellect or understanding of spiritual matters, they seem to belong to a different variety than men. So again, this is doubling down on that issue of you're typically going to find that 
women are witches. There's this strong belief that women are the weaker sex, not only physically, but intellectually as well, and that they will be um, more seduced by the devil, more apt to his cunning ways, and more willing to create a relationship with him. One of the key things that the Malleus Maleficarum really brings to the forefront is that in order to gain these um, supernatural powers from the devil or from a demon. In order to do that, you have to consummate the relationship. So they're much more willing to talk about women doing that than they are men doing that at this period of time. And that they almost form a marriage with that demon or with the devil that is then through this act of consummating, they have gained a particular power and a particular connection. So that's why we sometimes hear about witches being the bride of Satan. It's because that relationship is so close and we think about it almost as a marriage there. Mm. And I I like that where it says for whom they feel jealousy. Mm. Again, this is going back to that social reputation and that some of these women are doing these acts out of a personal cause, a personal vendetta in that way. Right. Um, The next one, there is a natural explanation, namely that she is more carnal than a man, as is clear in connection with many filthy carnal acts. As a result of them, countless injuries happen to human life, so that we can justly say that if the world could exist without women, we would interact with the gods. For if the evil of women did not in fact exist, not to mention their acts of sorcery, the world would remain unburdened of countless dangers." I think that one is just quite funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that one really struck me. And it's attitudes, again, we we like to think we've, we're enlightened. Right. Gotten away from that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I detect anyway, you know, vestiges of this in our supposedly secular, more secular right. uh, age that women are more responsible mm-hmm. if things happen and boys will be boys and you, you right. still have some of these attitudes. Absolutely. You see the misogyny coming through really clearly here in terms of looking at women as more keen to evil things or, or cunning things in that way. Um, what strikes me about this is the clear sexualization of women, you know, that they're the ones doing these filthy carnal acts and it's removing the blame from any man within this context, which is very interesting um, there. I also find the the phrase that if the world could exist without women, we would interact with the gods. Again, looking at women as being the true problem in society and that eliminating the problem would make it so that there was this utopia that existed there. Yeah. How widespread do you think that idea was? It seems like it's, at least in this this text, mm-hmm. it's just taken as... As fact. As fact. I think that there, this was a widespread idea that women really are the ones who, when you come down to a situation, are to blame there. There is this incredible stereotype of, of, again, women being the ones responsible for, especially in acts that maybe adultery or premarital sex, they're the ones responsible for that. They're the ones who were crazed with this idea and seduced a young man there. So I think that that's coming through really clearly, but also looking as women as being scapegoats. And that's often what we see with witches too, is that many of the women who brought into trial are scapegoats goats for larger issues that are happening within communities. So example, 
famines, right? If you have a famine that just wreaks havoc on, you know, a tiny village in France, they aren't necessarily going to think about climate conditions, about the condition of the soil, about the fact that sometimes, unfortunately, you get famine. What they're going to think is that there is a problem, that the devil or a demon was here, they are being punished. Who looks like they are responsible for bringing that into the world? And more than likely, it was going to be that outsider woman, maybe somebody who wasn't super pleasant, who didn't get along, who was maybe saying things outside, or even somebody who was like that healer, practicing things that are not normal. Maybe they're going to bring suspicious onto that, and they become the scapegoat for the family. They become the explanation, the reason. Somebody they can take their emotions out on and say, this is the clear reason. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could expand on this idea of, of, uh, of sex. Mm-hmm. Um, one question you asked your class is, why do you think sex was such a pivotal point about this? Right. What's, what's your answer? Why, um, why was it so pivotal? Again, it's that idea that in order to gain these powers, you had to marry the devil here. You had to go through a process where you created a pact. You sold your soul to the devil. He gave you certain powers. And by doing that, you have to consummate the relationship. That's how a marriage becomes legitimate is through consummation and through creating this family. So really, sex was a key there for them. Um, And also thinking about women's sexuality, Early modern Europe thought of women as the more sexualized sex. They were the ones who were, quite frankly, obsessed with sex. Maybe that's all that they could think about. And that's truly a a trope that went through there um, of of early modern women, not just witches, but in general. So, of course, they were going to be more apt to go to the devil, to sin with the devil, to do these carnal acts, which they call, you know, many filthy carnal acts here. Um, And they were just much more keen to do that within their women within their gender role. Mm-hmm. And I guess the reasoning people ascribe to that would be women who wanted to get back at an enemy or mm-hmm. wanted to gain power, I suppose. Or what, what were the reasons why women allegedly would, would do these ridiculous things? Um, you know, there are, there are lots of different reasons there why they would do these things. Part of it is wanting to get back to seek revenge upon those I think also power, that they wanted to be married to the devil. Perhaps they had always been evil in that way. Maybe their soul was never able to be saved there. Um, there's not a lot of logic that beco- that goes behind a lot mm-hmm. of these accusations. And that's something we have to really divorce ourselves when we start looking at these trials, is trying to rationalize it with our 20th century and our 21st century glasses on, and instead take those off and put us within that position. And you start to see, okay, they're trying to explain the inexplicable. They're trying to find somebody to blame for larger things that are outside their control, or that they don't have the tools or the capabilities of explaining mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, you you can't apply at least today's logic to this, no, right? I no. mean, if if you're talking about we're seeking an explanation for the famine, right? And we're going to scapegoat you, then I guess the logic mm-hmm. doesn't enter into it. But entire societies ascribed to this. Ascribed this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and this really does. I think witchcraft, when you start examining it, really sits at the intersection of all of the gender stereotypes that existed during this period and the social relationships that existed during this period. And you can really tell a lot about what early modern society felt about women, what they felt about men, what they felt about religion by looking at witchcraft and, and dissecting it. Um, there's a, you quote from a text that you use here. 
Um, what about this text assertion, you ask, that it wasn't gender that created witches, but rather witches fit into gender stereotypes? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't think that witchcraft creates anything different about gender. I think that it simply fits into the gendered assumptions. Again, women highly sexualized. So, of course, they would seek a relationship with the devil. Of course, that they would enter into this marriage where carnal acts are a big part of that. Um Of course, women are the weaker sex there. They're not as smart. So they couldn't see that this relationship would be as problematic. Um, You know, that really just fits with the gender stereotypes that existed during this Mm. period. Do we have any women's voices that uh, survive? A lot of times you look at the text, they're Mm -hmm. all written by men. And so, of course, Mm -hmm. you you know, it's going to have the men's point of view. Are, you mentioned some women would at mm-hmm. trial. Uh, yeah. You're facing this anyway. Just admit to it for maybe for the power. Are the, there women's voices? There the the best place that we can we can access women's voices is through the trial records, which is somewhat problematic because the majority of trial records are heavily edited. Um, they're just sort of snippets. They aren't what you think of as, as normal trial records that we have today with the stenographer in the corner. Of course, they couldn't do that with their quill and ink. They couldn't possibly write everything down. So we have to take trial records with a little bit of a grain of salt because they're usually summaries. They aren't direct quotes. But we can try to access some of women's responses and some of their voices from that. Um, What I find really interesting are the women who accuse other women of being witches. And we often have much larger um, of their narratives through there since they're providing testimony, they're providing detail, and you start to see, okay, through their terms, what is a good woman and what is not a good woman? And usually they're trying to paint these witches as not fitting within the standards. They aren't a caring mother or they aren't seeking a relationship with a man in sort of above the board standards or they aren't being nice in that way. So you start to see what they hold dear. Hmm. Now you said before that the vulnerable are, are going to be mm-hmm. most vulnerable. <laughs> yes. Um, so if you're poor, if you're unmarried, mm-hmm. if, if you don't fit the beauty standards, if you're an outsider, yeah. um, I was interested in, you mentioned before, I wonder if you could expand on this, midwives mm-hmm. were targeted. Midwives will be slightly targeted. Um, and midwives really hold this interesting place in society. They're desperately needed during the early modern period. Um, they are the only ones who are really allowed to enter, especially during the 16th and 17th centuries, the birthing areas. Since male doctors did not enter that space, they really hold an incredible amount of power there. And I think because of that secrecy, because they're the only ones allowed in the room, there is some suspicion on what is the power of midwives here. Um, you know, are they truly working within this religious context or are they doing something else? What is it about this secret space that we can't enter that men didn't want to enter, to be quite frank there? Um, but that brings them an incredible amount of suspicion. And especially because many of these midwives are working for themselves. And many of these midwives are rejecting traditional female stereotypes. They aren't at home. They aren't um, even if even if women aren't at home, they aren't caring just for their children. They aren't totally in within the domestic sphere. They're out in society. They're being able to travel oftentimes large distances to go to these women. They're very self-sufficient and they're very powerful. And therefore... Suspects. Suspects. Yeah. Yeah. 
suspect. Yeah. They aren't abiding by those those normal rules and those stereotypes. And anytime somebody doesn't do that, you start to become suspicious. Rumors circulate about these people, even if it's somebody like a midwife who holds an incredibly important position in society. Yeah. And these these trends wax and wane, but it, mm-hmm. I mean, to our sensibilities, this is this is societal norming on a very brutal scale. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess it must have been a top, the top priority. Yeah. To, to everybody conform. I think, you know, they call it the witchcraft craze. And I really do think that for about 100 years there, popular consciousness was just obsessed with this idea that witches are present. They have to be eradicated. They are a true menace to society. And if only we can get rid of witches and demons and the devil, we will be a better society. So conform to the standards, um, conform to religious standards, conform to state standards, and we will be a better society. Yeah. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to get into this interesting question. Why was this the period in which witchcraft Mm. hit its peak? And you have some answers for us. And we're talking about the early modern period, which again, what are the general dates? About 1450 to 1800. And this is when witchcraft hit its peak? Yeah, 1550 to 1650 is really the peak. Yeah. And you're saying the Salem witchcraft trials here in the, right in, in the, the New World right at the end. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. We're talking with Julia Gossard, who is Assistant Professor of History at Utah State University. She teaches a course called Witches, Workers, and Wives. Uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, how to turn a good idea into reality. It's not as though you have an idea and tomorrow you write a paper and you submit it to the journal and it's done. I'm the kind of inventor that's looking to make whatever amount of time we have in this world better. And so execution has always been part of it. When a good idea is not enough, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state. Musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and everything else. Go online to our user-friendly submission page at upr.org, click on the community calendar link, and review the submission guidelines. As fears about climate change grow, would reflecting the sun's rays away from the Earth help control global temperatures. Each decision will change the weather conditions of some people more than others in different ways. Who would you trust to have such power? I'm John Donvan. On the next Intelligence Squared US, four experts debate the science and validity of engineering solar radiation. Saturday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, glad you're with me. And uh, heading toward Halloween, we're talking about witchcraft. And uh, Julia Gossard is Assistant Professor of History at USU. She's giving a presentation titled Witchy Women, the Long History of Witchcraft in Western Civilization. That's for the USU Center for Women and Gender, their brown bag series. It is uh, Halloween Day. Um, I just have another 10 minutes left in the program. So witchcraft, this phenomenon... The worry about it, mm-hmm. 
Worry seems a pallid word. The the fear, the terror of it. <laughs> yes. And we have to root out, which is this this the whole witchcraft craze, you might call it, uh, hit a peak early modern period, uh, which begs the question: Why was this the period mm-hmm. which witchcraft? Hit it speak. Students always, you know, ask me this question. And then when they say, well, was witchcraft really going on? I say, well, that's kind of complicated because some people thought that they were doing what we might think of as witchcraft. But the reality is, no, it wasn't really going on. This was societal pressures. And we look at why it peaked during this period. And there are really like four examples that I like to talk about, which is the political issues, um, the communal issues, especially within changes within the economy and the church, and then women themselves. So with the political changes and the authority there, we're starting to see the development of the nation state on a very, 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 very nascent level. This is about bringing together people from disparate regions of a kingdom and putting them under the authority of one ruler. So absolutist um, monarchies are really trying to assert their power here. And one of the ways that they're doing that is through using this metaphor of a strong patriarchal household. So the king is the father king, right? He's the father to all of his subjects, to his people. And that's something that's very um, really paralleled within the home, that the father should be the king of his home. He has complete and total control over the legality of his wife, the actions of his wife, as well as that of his children. And it's creating those strong nuclear family units that the power of the state can really be accessed and that it can be funneled down there. So they're they're working that father king, um, you know, each home being its tiny kingdom really strongly. And if witches are single, older women, they fit outside of that stereotype. So the state is really pushing forward these issues that if you don't conform to these normal standards of these tiny patriarchal households, you're suspect. There must be something wrong with you. Maybe that is witchcraft. So that's a way in which they're able to garner massive political power there and establish their power in really important ways. Um, Within communities, too, there's a lot of changing socioeconomic status. We think about the early modern period as really proto-capitalism. People are starting to purchase goods using credit systems. Um, There's a ramping up of consumer culture and consumer capitalism. There are just more goods being produced. We aren't quite at the Industrial Revolution yet, but you're seeing more and more people producing goods, more goods being produced outside of the home in quasi-factories and more people um, gaining money that way. But right along with that, you have a land crisis. You have less land available to people. And you see some squabblings and some um, issues over land leasing as well as over buying land. This is really the key point about the Salem witch trials that come to a head. That was really all over the issue of who owned what land, who had access to that land. Um, And I think that you find that as being a very, very clear, um, contentious debate that suddenly when you're trying to talk about who owns this land – it opens it up to what is your reputation, um, who is suspect there. So that brings those sorts of things right to the forefront. You also have, like I've talked about, the inexplicable. Although we now know that the early modern period was affected by the Little Ice Age or really, really cooler, cooler temperatures that created famine, you have to imagine that these people had no real They might have had almanacs. They might have been able to look back, but they had no scientific explanation for what was going to 
what was going on, or if it was going to get better. And that caused an incredible amount of fear again. So you have that inexplicable. And like I've said before, the church as well, the concern over the Reformation was at a fever pitch. Atheism was there. Heresy was there. All of these things work together really well to fuel each other and create sort of this fireball of fear around which we use women and witches as the scapegoat. Mm. Uh, it's very interesting that um, the Salem witch trials about land. I didn't, mm-hmm. I had never heard that before. Yeah, the the Putnam family um, really wanted land, and there were these contentious debates about who owned the land there. And so, a lot of these things might have been a way to maneuver and say, you know, these ones that we're accusing of witchcraft. You know, these are young girls, so maybe it's you know, in retrospect, we can look at the land issue and say that might have pushed forward here, but. You know, that was a real issue that they were dealing with mm-hmm. at the time. So at a certain point, this fevered pitch of prosecution of witches, mm-hmm. persecution, you might say, this societal fevered pitch concern, this wanes. Why? Yeah. There's or, no, and when? It really, it really is over by the late 17th century. Mm-hmm. I can speak most um, sort of authoritatively about France, since that's my area of research. And France goes through a period with the witchcraft craze um, where it also becomes known as the affair of the poisons, which are witches concocting potions and brews, love potions or death potions or paralytics for members of the French nobility who are really seeking um, legs up to their competition and different maneuverings within society. So they're seeking these these supernatural um remedies and potions to help them there and that reaches really a a craze level and it creates a lot of problems and I think by the end of the 17th century people have had enough they've seen so many people put before these witchcraft trials so many people who are accused of witchcraft and then burned in the streets without ample evidence it gets to a point where people say this is enough this isn't logical and you're starting to enter the period of the very early enlightenment there where logic and reason are being debated more um, and this doesn't fit within that realm so you really reach a point where people say we've had enough Although the devil may still be present, it's not what we have been thinking for the past 100 years. This type of carnage and this type of violence has to stop. This is not what a civilized society does. And these ideas, you know, move forward as well. I think we would say, yeah. thankfully, right? Yes. Um, I wonder, uh, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to move toward takeaway. I want to frame it this way. An image came into my mind of a little girl on Halloween coming mm-hmm to Julia Gossard's house. Mm-hmm. And I could imagine Professor Gossard would want to bring her and her parents in and and, <laughs> and maybe give a <laughs> uh, the broad sweep of what yes. witchcraft has meant. I'm, I'm sure you resist, even if you I have I resist. Those. I try to resist. <laughs> what, what would you want that little girl to know or the, or the parents or, you know? Uh, I mean, I think anyone. that there's there's quite a bit of fun in dressing up as a witch. I, I typically do it. You know, there's there's a great... I, I just found out it's only a three-year tradition, but of of women dressing up in Logan as as witches together and sort of celebrating. I think that there's a great power that this image, as I said earlier, does give to women. It makes them feel empowered. It makes them feel like they might have these special traits or these special powers that set them apart there. And that's all good and fun. But at the same point in time, recognizing that witchcraft and the witchcraft craze was this incredibly violent period is one that we have to remember, too, that this was, you know, many historians call this really the greatest persecution of 
people in Western civilization until the 20th century, of course, with the Holocaust. Um, So you have to think about this period in much more serious terms, that this is mass hysteria, mass superstition, um, not the use of logic, working against people and persecuting them for not remaining within the standards of a society. And I think that that's the biggest thing about the witchcraft craze that we need to recognize is that this was an incredibly violent and illogical period. I think it's bears repeating. That's incredible. Before the 20th century, mm-hmm. the witchcraft uh, trials and really w- was the biggest. It was the biggest. It was a mass persecution of people. Like I was said at the beginning of the program, a low estimate puts about 100,000 men and women who are executed for witchcraft. And a high estimate is about 9 million. I would say that it's probably more likely around 500,000. But that's an incredible amount of people when you think about the population of the world at the time, which was much, much smaller. Mm. Um, so that's a lot of people who went through torture, who went through these intense personal um, trials, and oftentimes were then burned or hanged and executed in very violent ways. Yeah. Now, knowing this history viscerally as you do, are are you able to enjoy that? You know, do you do you put that aside and enjoy the? I think you can put that aside and enjoy some of the the pop culture aspects of this, um, and say, okay, there is a point for Halloween to be silly, but within the study of it, it is very serious. Yeah, good place to end the conversation. We've been talking with Julia Gossard. Assistant Professor of History at USU, and she teaches a class called Witches, Workers, and Wives. Julie Gossard, welcome, or or thank you so much. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Uh, We appreciate it. Always interesting. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. Hi, this is Jason Isbell, inviting you to visit E-Town this week. I'll be joined by Nick, Helen, and my wife, Amanda Shires. That's this week in E-Town. Saturday evening at 7 on Utah Public Radio. My name is Lee Austin, and I worked here for many years as program director, and now happily retired and living and listening to UPR, mostly in Wayne County at 94.5 FM. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. On the next on being, community organizing as spiritual practice. I think that there's this place where we have a responsibility to hold to the power of love that we know to be true and to not allow the world around us to deaden that in ourselves. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. That's Sunday nights at 5 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio.